So turn your Bible, if you would, to Revelation chapter 11. We've only got just a few things left to cover uh, in our study, and then we will be uh, pretty much complete. The intent really at the beginning was kind of a flyover, just kind of giving some of these major events. Now some of them we've spent a little bit more time with, we've kind of zoomed in, uh, but uh, I want to keep just rolling on and... There's just a few things left that we've got to address, and so I hope it's been helpful. I hope it's been understandable, and and, uh, it's a heavy study. (laughs) This is is not a light study. Revelation is a very deep book. There's a lot of symbolism in it. There's a lot of things that we don't quite understand, but like I said, it's written for our learning. God gave it to us for a reason, and this is a unique book in that it carries promises and curses at the beginning at the end. There's a blessing. It says, blessed are those who read this and keep the sayings in this book. Not just talking about the Bible, but it's talking more specifically about Revelation. Blessed are those who understand and keep these sayings, and also if there's a curse, if we take away. So it's a pretty important book, and we try to do our best to understand it. I want to talk tonight about the two witnesses, the two witnesses. We find them in Revelation chapter 11, so let's go ahead and begin in verse 1. We'll read down to about 13 or 14, and then we'll come back and pull out a few points. Revelation chapter 11, in verse 1, says, And there was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise, and measure the temple of God and the altar, and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple leave out, and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they trod underfoot forty and two months. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth, and devoureth their enemies." And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry, and shall send gifts one to another, because these two prophets tormented them that dwelled on the earth. And after three days and a half the Spirit of life from God entereth into them, And they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven, saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And the same hour was there a great earthquake. And the tenth part of the city fell, and in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand. And the remnant were affrighted, and gave glory to the God of heaven." So this is one of those subjects in Revelation that you kind of read and wonder what's going on. Big question is, who are these guys? And there's been so much talk about that over the years. 
who are these guys and trying to give them names and trying to give them identities and um, or sometimes it's one of those things you just read over and you just kind of dismiss and you go on to other parts of the book well I want to kind of spend some time and pull out a couple things and hopefully uh, hopefully they'll be helpful we closed last time by looking at trumpet number seven when Christ comes again to reign on His earth, and that is the time that I believe, at least, the gathering of His church happens. He raptures His church to Him. Again, you may believe different, and that's fine. But the, there's no mistaking that at trumpet number 7, Christ comes again. He takes control of the earth. He begins to reign. And when that moment happens, the instant that trumpet blows, the age of grace is closed. We spent some time saying that we live in the age of grace. We live in the age of mercy. That God has great grace to us and great mercy to us who are sinners. And the call of the gospel goes out multiple times. And even people who reject Him are given uh, time to repent. That's what the age of grace is. And we as the church are to be living symbols of that grace, right? The great commission is to go and make disciples. When that trumpet sounds the age of grace is done christ came as a lamb the first time the second time when he returns he comes as the lion of the tribe of judah he comes to reign he comes to rule over the nations but up until that point god has always had his witness god has always had his witness in the earth whether it be faithful abel whether it be faithful noah or abraham and then as god works through Abraham and builds a nation, the nation Israel, or in our day, the church, God has always had His witness. And in the time of the end, it's not going to be any different. In fact, He's going to have two very powerful witnesses. We're given information about them in Revelation chapter 11. So let's look at the first couple verses. Jesus, this, this part is a part you probably read over. You say, I don't know what that means, and you keep going to verse 3. Notice verse 1 and 2. And there was given to me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise, and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple leave out, and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. So John now is given a measuring stick, basically, and he says, Go measure the temple. Well, if you're familiar with the temple layout from Old Testament passages and Uh, The temple that Nehemiah built and the temple that Herod built would have been very similar to what Solomon built. You had the temple and all that uh, pertained to it was holy. Uh, You had to be sanctified to enter. You had to be a priest to enter. And then the outside was called the court of the Gentiles. There was a separation between holy and unholy. And that same imagery is pulled here, but I think it's to give... Give us a very specific message. You understand, there's no temple to measure when John receives this. The temple is destroyed in 70 A.D. John writes this, the revelation comes at about 90 to 95 A.D. The temple's been destroyed for about 20 years. There's no temple to measure. So we understand now this this becomes symbolic. This is pointing to something else. And there's no measurements given. 
The angel says, go measure the temple, but John doesn't record, well, it was this much by this much. No, there's no measurements given. It's just some descriptors that are given. Measure two things. Or excuse me, he says, measure one of two things. Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But leave out the court which is outside. That is given to the Gentiles. So we have two groups here, those who worship God and the Gentiles. Now, this is not talking about Jewish versus Gentiles. It's using that word in the sense of the world, and the Scripture will do that. It calls the nations of the world, the unbelieving nations, Gentiles. He's told to measure the temple, the altar, and the people who worship in it, right? Measure the temple of God, the altar, and them that worship therein. Take a measure. Look carefully. Be specific about this. But he's also to told, told to leave out that which is outside the temple because it's going to be tread underfoot. I spent a lot of time thinking with this and, and what could it mean? Why is this here? And here is what I see. God knows His people. God knows exactly what's going on. He knows His temple, His altar, those that worship therein. He is watching. Paul tells Timothy, I believe it's in 2 Timothy, that the Lord knoweth them that are His. The Lord knows who are, who are His. He is very intimate with His. He watches over, He protects, He guides. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, He says, He works all things to the good of them that are called and who love Him. So God is very concerned. God is very watchful over who are His. And He knows exactly who are not His as well. When you read the book of Revelation, you, you're, you're very... It's very in your face uh, that there are two distinct groups of people. God's people and the rest. There are two marks. Those who bear the mark of the beast and those who bear the mark of, the, of God. You could look in Revelation chapter 13 if you would just to show. Revelation 13 and in verse 16 talking about the Antichrist and his false prophet. It says this, he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. And that no man may buy or sell, save that he had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. If you look up in verse 12, He exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. So there's these people who are following the beast, worshiping him, and they are marked by him. Well, there's also another mark, and we, we mentioned this a couple lessons ago, but just go over to chapter 7. Chapter 7, and verse 1, Revelation 7 and verse 1. And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor the sea, nor any tree. I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of God in their foreheads. There's a mark of the beast that takes place either in the right hand or in the forehead. And we see now here there is a seal of God that is uh, talked about. Verse 4, And I heard the number of them which were sealed. And there were sealed 144,000 
of all the tribes of the children of Israel. We'll get to that number in just a second. But notice the list. If you're a Bible student, you know there's something different. When the twelve tribes of Israel are listed in all places of Scripture, it's a very specific order. There's only one list that's out of order, and that's right here. Verse 5, of the tribe of Judah. Judah's never first. Reuben's always first. Why would Judah be listed? Is it because Jesus Himself is the Lion of the tribe of Judah? From Judah the Deliverer comes, and this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000. Then it lists Reuben of Gad, the tribe of Asher, tribe of Nephtali, the tribe of Manasseh, the tribe of Simeon. Verse 7, the tribe of Simeon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of who? What's that next word? Levi. Levi's not a tribe. Levi's a priesthood. They are never included in the list. But now here they are. Of the tribe of Issachar, sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Zabulon, sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Joseph. Joseph doesn't have a tribe. His two sons have a tribe, Ephraim and Manasseh. But now, here it's combined in Joseph. And of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. One of the sons is missing. His name is Dan. The tribe of Dan. Well, long story short, Dan... The, the, the tribe of Dan where they lived was always a problem of idol worship and, and idolatry and all the things that go along with that. These are the faithful sons. These are the faithful tribes. The ones who followed God. Yeah, they had some hiccups here and there, but they were the ones who were faithful to Him and they received the seal of God. It doesn't stop there now. Look at verse 9. And after this I beheld... By the way, you want to see the rapture right after the rapture in Revelation? Revelation 7 and 9 is one of those places. And after this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude. I looked, and all of a sudden, boom, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and to the Lamb, And all the angels stood round about the throne, all the elders and the four beasts fell down before the throne in their faces, and they worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them into living fountains of waters and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Chapter 7 shows God's people. They are marked. They are known. And by the way, later we have another mention of 144,000. They're called first fruits. They're representatives of the faithful of Israel, representatives of the faithful of God's people. All that to say, there's two very distinct groups in Revelation God's people, the world. There's no in between. 
There's no in-between. We live in the day of in-between. What we see in the religious landscape, specifically the area of Christianity, it's really rather interesting. Okay? You go and you talk or you observe uh, professing Christians. And you're going to find a wide spectrum. You have those who are faithful and committed. And I, I'm, I'm talking about any church. It doesn't matter if they differ from us doctrinally or not. In any church, you're going to have those who are faithful. They're there. They're committed. They love the church. They, they love God. And they're serving there through thick and through thin, right? Those people that are they're there, they're faithful. They've been through maybe several pastors or they've been through a couple remodels or they've been through church splits and they haven't left. They're committed. You find those in just about every church. But I think it's safe to say in professing Christians, the vast majority is not that way. It's very conditional. Very conditional. They'll leave if they don't like the building. We're going to meet down here in this room. This doesn't look like a church. I'm out of here. That's too old school. I don't like those windows. Why do we have pews? Who does pews anymore? Who does a piano? Heard these things. I've heard these things. They're gone. Or the music isn't right. People want different music. They don't like the old school or maybe they only like the old school or whatever it is and they um, predicate their choice of church based on music. So when the music changes and what they were there for really in the beginning changes, well then they're out. They're not committed because their commitment goes only so far. Whether it's building appearance or the band or sermon Length. Oh, the past 30 minutes, man. That's getting too long. Or there's not enough humor. Or it's not entertaining enough. You read too much Bible. I have had that said to me. You read too much Bible. So, I'm out of here. I'm going to a place that doesn't do that. My wife works at an establishment that runs a church. They recent or a church at rent, wherever you want to say. They recently closed a coffee shop, remodeled it. People left because of a coffee shop cafe. That's the vast majority. In betweeners, right? Conditional. I'm here as long as it's good, as long as it's cool, as long as it entertains me. That is sad to say the vast majority of professing Christians. If something doesn't fit personal taste, they're gone. Revelation knows nothing of that. You understand? There is none of that in the book of Revelation. When this stuff starts going, it will be very clear. You're either in or you're out. You're in or you're out. You've got the mark of God or you've got the mark of the beast. There's not going to be flip-flopping between two. There's not going to be a nominal, meaning a speech-only following. Because that speech only could get you killed. So those people that aren't truly in, they're not, they're, they're not, they're not going to be in. They're going to be following other things. 
You ever wonder why John sounds so... Uh, what's a good word to say on camera? <laughs> black and white. Um, that's probably the best way to put it. Black and white or almost uh, irritable. He's got this tone to him when he writes First, uh, Second, and Third John. Like, hey, if you love God, you're going to do this. If not, you're a liar, right? It's all, it's really kind of abrupt, and he's just laying it down. Do you, have you ever thought he has seen the revelation? He has seen what's coming. And those letters are written around the same time. I think he's trying to get a message out. Hey, (laughs) this is what it's about. You're either following or you're not. And if you're not, you need to get right. Because Revelation doesn't see any of this in-between stuff that is so prevalent today. And God will know whose are His. He will watch over them very carefully. The temple of today is the church, is it not? Measure the temple. The altar, that was taken care of in Christ. In fact, let me back up just one step. We are part of that temple, right? We are built together as living stones, a spiritual house, Second Peter says. Ephesians says we are built together as living stones to be a habitation of the Spirit. We're part of the temple of God. And God says, you measure that. You measure that because I am watching The altar, that's Christ, right? He is our Passover lamb. Didn't John the Baptist say of him, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world? Christ is the one who shed His blood and He entered in to the Holy of Holies with that blood to purchase redemption. And then what did it say back in Revelation 11? Them that worship God therein. God knows. To me, these little verses bring great comfort. God's concern is not necessarily going to be about the world that is wreaking havoc. His watch is going to be over His people. His people. and He, he says, measure that. You take careful measurement because I'm watching. To me, that brings great comfort. So sometimes these little verses that we skip over, we stop and think about them. They have quite a big meaning to them. So let's, let's look at a couple things about the uh, two witnesses and we'll be done. Verse 3, I will give powers in italics, right? Probably not there. So what John hears is probably not, I'm going to give power to them. That's, going to be, that's already evident by later verses. He says, I'm going to give my two witnesses. I will give unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score days. That's three and a half years. Clothed in sackcloth. Uh, yeah, clothed in sackcloth. Their ministry is three and a half years. So, during the last part of the tribulation, which is super cool. Here's why. What happens at the midway point, at what's called the uh, abomination of desolation? The Antichrist shows his true colors, right? He comes out and he starts wreaking havoc. Guess who also appears on the scene? Two witnesses. You know, you read the Revelation, you think, man, Antichrist has center stage. He's going to be stomping around the earth, just taking things out. He doesn't have the center stage to himself. No. These two guys show up. And from the things we read, what uh, look, look in verse 10. The last part. Because these two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth. 
They're going to have a worldwide impact, just as the Antichrist is. Go ahead. I, we got a question. Yes, the question is midweek, is that when he sits on the throne, claims to be God? Yes, that is when he just comes out with his true colors and then begins to wage war against God's people. So what I see happening is he comes on the scene and then all of a sudden these two witnesses pop up. And I don't, I don't, maybe it's just me, but I've read this in the past and it's almost like, oh, like these these two poor little guys walking through Jerusalem saying, hey, believe, please believe, as if they're powerless compared to this big raging red beast of a, a guy that's just wreaking havoc and almost as if they're running scared. No, 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 no. I see them a powerful force that have a worldwide impact too. And it could it be, what did Revelation Verse uh, 13. Yes, Revelation 13. Remember the false prophet. Notice something here, okay? Let's, let's just see something. Revelation 13, verse 11 and 12 talk about him. He, he's the false prophet, the religious side of the Antichrist's empire, and he causes everybody to worship the Antichrist. Verse 13. He doeth great wonders so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of man, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast. Huh. So, the false guy has got his own little miracles. Could it be he's trying to copy and silence the guys who have the real power, as we'll see just in a minute? Because they're coming on the scene. They're talking the truth of God. They're backing it up with signs. So just like uh, Pharaoh's two musicians got to try to copy Moses. This is what the false prophet is doing. You know what it's, this has done for me? It's taken those two down a notch. Not, not, not the two witnesses. Uh, the Antichrist and the false prophet. Taking them down a notch. God's got his guys doing his job while these guys are doing their thing. Verse 4, Revelation 11, 4. We've got a lot of ground to cover. So they show up. They've got a three and a half year ministry. Verse 4 says something about them. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. Well, you probably read that. And if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, you say, what is he talking about? Trees and candlesticks. This is a quotation from a book in the Old Testament. So keep your finger here. Let's go to Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 4. You find Malachi, which is at the end of the Old Testament. Hang one door left, and you're at Zechariah. We've got some prophetic visions going on in this book, but in chapter 4 specifically, I want to address your attention to Zechariah chapter 4. Verse 1 says, And the angel that talked with me came again and woke me as a man that is woken out of sleep. And he said unto me, What seest thou? So now this man has shown a vision. Zechariah has shown a vision. And I said, I have looked, 
And behold, a candlestick of all gold with a bowl on the top. So if you've seen a menorah, everybody's seen a menorah, right? So you've got this golden menorah, golden candlestick, and on the top of it is a bowl. And his seven lamps, it has seven lamps, and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are on the top thereof. So you have these little feeder tubes that go to the lamps from this bowl. Verse 3, And two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl and the other upon the left. And so I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? The angel that talked with me answered and said to me, Knowest not what these be? And I said, No. Verse 6, He answered and spake to me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, This is a key phrase, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. It's the first thing is given. It's not by man's might, not by man's power, it's by God's Spirit. Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? Thou shalt become a plain, and it shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. Zerubbabel is involved in rebuilding the temple after they come back from Babylon. So you got Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel, Babylon. Then they come back in. That's where Nehemiah comes in. Ezra comes in. Zerubbabel is one of the priests who's going to help rebuild the temple. There's a mountain in front of him of opposition. It's not by his might. It's not by his power. It's by spirit. That mountain's going to be made flat. You're going to go in and do what you need to do. Just so you understand the context. Verse 8, Moreover, the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. Those seven what? Lampstand. They are the eyes of the Lord, which run to and fro through the whole earth. Then I answered and said unto him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick, upon the left side thereof? And what be these two olive branches which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? Let me give you the picture again. Golden menorah, golden candlestick, bowl on top of it. The bowl has little tubes going down that feed the lights. The two olive trees have tubes that go to feed the, boil, to feed the bowl with oil that feeds the lamps. Get the picture? This is what he's seeing. And he answered and said to me, Knowest not what these be? Verse 14, These are my two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. If you look in Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 16, the Lord calls Israel His olive tree. It's no secret, even in the book of Revelation, there are seven golden candlesticks that go before the Lord. And Christ Himself says the seven candlesticks are the seven churches before the Lord. The two anointed ones who are fed not by might, not by spirit, or excuse me, not by power, but by His Spirit. It's the witnesses of God. God has always had His witnesses. Remember I just said that? Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament. We have always been the witnesses of God. The ones who go to and fro through the earth, doing His will, fed by the power of the Spirit. And John is shown these two witnesses who stand before God. 
Are these two individuals or it is, is it a united effort of restored Israel and the church? I don't know. I tend to think it's two individuals that stand as representatives and they're, they're doing God's great power, but they are His witnesses by His Spirit. And he quotes Zechariah to kind of tie it all in. His anointed ones that stand before the earth and do His things and cause mountains to fall by the power of His Spirit. So go back to Revelation 11, verse 5. I want you to notice a couple things out of here. Revelation 11 and 5 says, If any man hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man hurt them, he must be in this manner killed. (laughs) What a picture. You've all played Mario Brothers, right? Like the original one, not Mario Kart. I'm talking about the Nintendo... And you get the little glowing flower. Okay, some people at least know what I'm talking about. See, I, I did, people tell me he throws them. I thought he always spit them. <laughs> to me, it looked like... <laughs> That's the picture that I get when I read this verse. Somebody's going to mess with me, <laughs> there it goes. They've got supernatural power. Now, it probably means more along the lines of they call down fire, specifically because of an example we have, namely Elijah. Didn't Elijah call down fire by his mouth, right? Called down fire from heaven in uh, 1 Kings 19, 18 or 19. But if there, anyone tries to harm them, they have that power to call down fire. They also have the power in verse 6 to shut the heaven that it rained not in the days of their prophecy. Elijah also had that power. He prophesied and it didn't rain for seven years. Notice what it says next. And they have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Who had that power? Moses, right? Water turned to blood, plagues coming on. So many people try to ask who, or try to assume who this is. Well, Elijah was taken up into heaven in a chariot. He didn't really die, so it must be Elijah come back to life. And nobody really knows where the body of Moses was buried. Did he really die? So is it him come back? I don't know. I don't know. But these two witnesses return in the power of the old prophets, and it could be that their ministry is specifically geared to Israel. Uh, but whatever it is, it seems to have a global impact. So they testify with all of these signs and these wonders. We don't have time to go, but if you go to Revelation chapter 8 and chapter 9, and you look at trumpets 1 through 6, sounds an awful lot like what these guys can do. Could it be, as the trumpet sounds, it's coinciding with what their ministry is saying? could be these are not some weak force it's a force to be reckoned with if it's going to appear that the antichrist has enemies it's going to be these two he's going to hate them because they're going to they're going to can i say steal his thunder they're going to be on the scene the world is going to be looking at them look at what they can do they're calling down fire <coughs> it's not raining the sea is turned to blood by the by the way, that's one of the trumpets. 
The sea is turned to blood. Or, or that's a bowl. We'll get to that. And then now you've got the Antichrist doing his thing over here. They're going to be pulling from both sides, you see? There'll be witnesses uh, for the Lord in this time. Verse 7, when they shall finish their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, overcome them, kill them. You're going to be killed by the Antichrist. That's who the beast is, ascendeth out of the pit. Verse 8, and their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually, spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, and where our Lord was crucified. We don't have time for that explanation. John gives a very specific explanation. Where was the Lord crucified? Jerusalem, right? So their streets will lie in their body will lie in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days, right? Verse nine. And they of all people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry. It's going to be like a holiday. These people who kept talking about the Bible and God, they're dead. Yay! Let's send presents and they shall send gifts to one another. Happy Prophet Dead Day. I used to think that was incredulous. Not anymore. Society today would do that, wouldn't they? Do you know if our Trump, uh, our president was assassinated, President Trump, there would be people probably rejoicing in the streets. People hate him that much. Now you take that hatred that they have for him and amplify it more about these two witnesses who are out there doing God's work. That's the scene that you have. Because they tormented them. The truth torments those who are not God's. They called them out. The things that they were speaking were truth. Even in this day of delusion, the truth will go out by God's witnesses. And the people of the earth call it torment. Notice verse 11. And after three and a half days, the Spirit of life from God entered into them. And they stood upon their feet. Great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven, heaven saying unto them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. Does that sound familiar? Behold, the Lord shall return with the trump of God with a shout. And those who are dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive will be caught up with them to meet them together in the air. Sounds like the rapture happens, and boom, they're caught up. And then you notice what is next? A great earthquake. Part of the city falls and people are slain in the earthquake, like uh, seal number 6 in Revelation 6, where the earth shakes. And then we go right into trumpet number 7. And the seventh angel sounded. There's much discussion, there's much spiritualization about this passage and who these people are. I I don't want to stand before you and say who they are. They could be two individuals that are alive and God calls to that. It could be people like Elijah or Enoch or Moses or somebody who is brought back to do this special thing. It could be the group of 
those who turn to Christ from Israel and His church who is empowered, and you have these two great groups of people doing amazing things? I don't know. But what has impacted me is even though the Antichrist seems to be the focus so much of us sometimes, the two witnesses are there doing God's work and seemingly taking the stage away from Him. <laughs> I, 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 don't know how to, I don't know how to put it into words, but that's kind of the feeling that I have. It's like, whoa, it's not going to be just all about Him. God's going to have these two massive... Uh, the, the, witness, the massive witness of these two faithful men who's going to be vying for uh, people's hearts just as much as the Antichrist. Which brings us into our next steps. The, the age of grace is done. The final witness has been here through these two witnesses. I believe people are going to be saved during the tribulation. I believe they're going to turn to Him and follow Him through the witness of these two individuals. But when that last trumpet sounds, the age of grace is done, Christ is returned, the church is gathered to Him, and He has a score to settle. It's been a long-running score, and it's with one specific place, one specific city. You know the name of that city? Babylon one of the oldest cities in the Bible. It symbolizes many things, corruption, sin, man and his rebellion. And after Christ returns, the first thing he does is settle a score with that city. So we'll get into that next week. Again, I know some of these things might be heavy. Some of these things might be a little mind-bending, but... They're also helpful to me to know that God has His witness even in the worst of times. He will still have a powerful witness. So, for all who are tuning in, um, pray that was helpful. And we'll see you again at Sunday, Sunday morning, 10 a.m. Any questions? Comments? It's good to see everyone. So, drive through prayer. Saturday at 8, and uh, be here, be out there for an hour, maybe two hours, see how it's going before it gets too terribly hot. I'm probably going to be sitting out there wearing masks and gloves and all that, but it's worth it if we can get some, some people uh, to pray for them and, and uh, be able to touch their lives. Also, I received a call. Uh, I'm going to get more info on it. But a call from somebody I used to go to high school with who's involved in a, a group uh, that deals with foster families. So placement for foster kids, but also support of those families, uh, not just monetarily, but uh, very practical things. And uh, even hosting meetings for foster families as they come together. He, he was just simply asking if our church would be interested in that, in perhaps... Uh, coming alongside some of the families uh, that are in San Dimas area and helping them out, like making a grocery run or like picking up groceries that they've already paid for because they can't take all the, the foster kids out, go getting something like that, or, or watching the kids at a park, give the parents a couple hours um, 
rest, just very practical things like that. Sometimes we don't think of what a family who might have three or four foster children along with their own um, might uh, need help in that. So let's keep that in prayer because that could be a very good opportunity to, to touch some lives as well as um, begin to build in the children's lives a very strong foundation that they might need too as we can come along and help. So I'm supposed to get more information on it as it as I do. Uh, I'll let you guys know in what ways we might be able to get involved. So any last minute prayer requests, announcements, anything like that?